step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 5, Episode 36. It was the second half of my interview from 2018 with Jason Baldwin. Uh, Hopefully you guys all enjoyed the interview. I know I enjoyed uh, conducting it. Jason's a really cool guy. And that second half was one of the most interesting interviews I've ever heard from him, meaning the things that he was saying are things that I hadn't heard before. Uh, hopefully everyone is doing well during um, our current situation with the the COVID-19 coronavirus. We are here in the rough household on day five of quarantine of all kids at home, not to mention the fact that my son Parker just had his tonsils out, so he's recovering. So we're a little stir-crazy. I'm joined today, of course, by uh, Mike Bussing. Hey! And Mr. Zach Weaver. Yo! And uh, I'm going to be honest with you, we're drinking. We're drinking at 11 o'clock in the morning. I have a Bloody Mary. Mike has a Bloody Mary. We're sipping. And Zach has a... Uh, screwdriver. A screwdriver. Yeah, we just uh, getting a little stir-crazy in the office. Not, don't have a whole lot to talk about because we haven't been out. But we are here today to give you some content to listen to while you're spending your weekend at home. So here we go with the Season 5, Episode 36, Friday Follow-Up. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, real quick, we we said that we didn't want to talk about the coronavirus. Actually, all three of us, right before we came into the room. You're going to do it, aren't you? I'm going to do it just for a second. Just for a second. We didn't want to because we don't want to bring people down. But I don't want to bring people down at all. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm actually really impressed at how well our country and everybody is handling the huge changes that, we are, that we're going through right now with, you know, I, I assume, I think most states are like Michigan where all bars and restaurants are closed, schools are closed, you know, so it's something we've never been through before. But just the, the only thing that I want to say is, if you can afford to do so, order some carryout from your local restaurants and and you know bars, eateries, uh, because that that's really really bothering me. The thing that that's bugging me the most is I know so many people 
that work in the service industry who live week by week, some day by day, and they live off tips. And they have just had their jobs completely eliminated, and they are struggling. So if you can afford to do so, if you're the type of person that, that maybe goes out to eat a couple times a week, order some carryout, please, from your uh, from your favorite place or delivery from wherever your favorite eateries are. But just to try to do something for these these poor folks, I really I really feel for them. And that's all I'm going to say about it. So moving on from that, let's get back into. Uh, which hopefully is a welcome distraction from all of this, is the investigation we're doing into the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, we do have some big news. Some of you already may have seen in social media uh, by the time you hear this, uh, but if you have not, our TV series premiere has moved way up. It's going to be eight days from now. Saturday, March 28th, The Forgotten West Memphis 3 is going to air on Oxygen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode today. But I just want to let you guys know, so we are shifting full-fledged right back into West Memphis 3 gear as the show is about to air. And so this all, and by the way, this break that we took with uh, the Damien and Jason interviews were only intended to give us some time to research Season 8, because that was our plan. I just found out a few days ago that they moved the launch date of the TV series from July up to next week. So this the timing couldn't be more perfect. That's what's going to happen. And uh, before we get into listener questions, uh, Zach, what did you think about the interview with Jason? I took a couple things away from it. The big thing is Jason's really a stand-up guy. I mean, mm-hmm. he's truly an amazing human being. First, he comes in and says he has no ill will towards Jesse, which has got to be tough. you know. But the way he broke it down is he said, look, it's the bully that's the problem, mm-hmm. not the person being bullied. I still remember that moment in the room with him. And it's the thing I talk about the most about all of my interactions with Jason. And I've had a lot is how powerful of a statement that was to me. Yeah, that was amazing. Those those interviews, I don't remember if I mentioned last week or not, but the interview with Jason and Damien were both filmed because okay. we were going to use them for the TV series. We ended up not using them, uh, but the uh, our production company, uh, Herzog, I believe still has the videos, so I want to see if I can get a hold of those videos so we can post them on YouTube. Because Jason's saying that when someone's being bullied, that you don't get mad at the person being bullied. Instead, you hold the bully responsible. I remember, too, that's giving me chills now thinking about it, looking him in the eyes and the fire in that man's eyes when he said that. I remember calling my wife right after the interview and telling her, I was like, wow, I thought, you know, I was really looking forward to interviewing Damien because he's so dynamic and he's an interesting guy. Jason's a very nice guy, easy. I wasn't expecting a lot out of the interview, which is sad. I should, sad to say, but that was, that's the truth. Yeah. But I was like, he is, he is an extremely dynamic guy. He is full of emotion. And, and I mean, he, he sent chills down my spine when he made that comment. Yeah, about going after the bully, and it and it and it speaks a lot to, as you said, his character, mm-hmm. and also I think it speaks a lot to his intelligence. You know that that he's able to look at this situation, get beyond emotion, and look at it logically, and realize that even though it was Jesse Miss Kelly's confession that put him there, Jesse was another victim in all this. And the other thing in regards to that was him talking about Pam Hicks. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, she deserved justice. Right. And I think that was really powerful, too, because he's the one that had to deal with this. But he's still understanding that these people lost their children. 
and working hand in hand with Pam Hicks to try to help. I mean, that was that was big for me too. Yeah, and it, it, they're actually close. Um, him and his wife Holly have gotten close with Pam Hicks, and you know, I think John Mark Byers as well to an extent. You know, so that's for those of you. I assume most of you listening now know the case pretty much. But John Mark Byers was the adoptive father of Chris Byers, who was one of the the victims, and then Pam Hicks was Stevie Branch's mother, uh, one of the other victims. So two of the victims' parents are good friends with with Jason and and fully believe in his innocence. But Jason definitely I've never gotten a selfish vibe out of Jason. He wants for sure, he wants his name cleared. There's no mistake about that. But he wants this case solved. Yeah. You know, he he is he is bright enough and insightful enough to see the ripple effect of the devastation of this case and to realize that it's not just him. It was, you know, his family, his brothers, his mother, the victims' families, the, the just people of West Memphis, so many people that were devastated by this, and he just wants it over with. Yeah, it sounds like he really wants justice for everybody. Yeah, he does, and they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other big takeaway from this was the second Jason Baldwin. Mm-hmm. That was really, I mean, I know we talked about a little bit during this, well, I say we, I wasn't part of this season, but I know right. it was talked about during this season, but that's mm-hmm. still a very interesting thing and in how that evolved. Yeah, and I I went back and I had to look. It's tricky for me jumping back into this because this is three cases ago for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so going back through all the paperwork, but in that interview, I said you've got to kind of go through. It's it's a string of events and a string of documents to figure out that it, that might have been who Jesse Miss Kelly was talking about. Mm-hmm. It's what it was. Is there was there was Jason Baldwin is actually Charles Jason Baldwin. Okay, there was a, who was five foot eight, hundred twelve pounds. Then there was a Jason Howard Baldwin, who was about the same age, five foot eight, three hundred pounds, violent guy. He's got a, a very violent, long criminal history. I think he's even in prison right now, if I'm not mistaken. But when they first started interviewing Jesse before he all of a sudden decided to confess, they were asking him who he heard did it, who he might have done it, and he says he heard Damien and Robert Birch. Okay, who Robert Birch was another guy, and and L. G. Hollingsworth, I think, was another one mentioned. Now, in Damien's interview, one of his initial interviews, he had mentioned L.G. Hollingsworth and Jason Baldwin as people he thought could have been involved in this. Mm -hmm. But he was clearly talking about Jason Howard Baldwin. Now, do him and Damien have any connection? No, not really. Not at all, as far as I know, as a matter of fact. Um, I can't say for sure because I I don't know, but I don't believe there's any connection there. But uh, I think they said there was talk about it's hard to know what's fact and fiction. But that uh, the the Jason the other Jason Baldwin had like evil tattooed across his knuckles, and you know they said I think they said Damien did too or whatever, whatever. But they were like this guy was a guy that had you know had killed cats for fun and and was just just a bad guy. And so Damien had said I don't know maybe L. G. Hollingsworth or Jason Baldwin that Jason Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And then when they get to Jason and they're talking about Damien or excuse me Jesse and they're talking about Damien and they. Uh, uh, you, you know how that all came about, that the police had him get a hold of Vicki Hutchison to connect Vicky with Damien to try to get something out of him. But Jesse had initially said that he thought it could have been Damien because he was thought to be like this devil-worshipping guy, Satanist, or Robert Birch, who was another guy that was kind of known throughout town, kind of a violent guy into you know, Satanist stuff and wearing all black and things like that. And then later it shifts to maybe it was Jason Baldwin. But in all these different interviews, there's a clear line drawn by 
the West Memphis police where they're clearing up when people are mentioning Jason Baldwin in early stages of the investigation, who's talking about Jason Baldwin, the one we know, and who's talking about the other Jason Baldwin? They're making it the big one or the little guy. So there is a clear definition between the two in there. For sure. But except for Jesse Miss Kelly's interview. Okay. When he says Jason Baldwin, they just kind of keep going with it. But Jason Howard Baldwin, the big Jason Baldwin, and Robert Birch, the one he initially said could have done it with Damien, are like best friends. So the I, I think I'd say you got to follow a string of paperwork. It's still not super crystal clear, but it, it, it reads to me as though most likely – Initially, when when Jesse is talking about Jason Baldwin, because of how he was talking about Jason or uh, Robert Birch, that he was probably talking about the other Jason Baldwin at that time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and do we know much about robert birch uh, we do. I mean, we covered him in season five. I, to be honest with you, off the top of my head, I don't remember a whole lot about a lot of these guys. Uh, but I, I, I went back through some of my notes with the, because, because I had said that and, and some people had asked, not on the, the follow up thread, but, you know, what was the documents around Jason Baldwin? And keep in mind, too, when I did that interview with Jason again, there's the very beginning of the investigation. So there were things that I knew on the surface, but hadn't fully investigated or vetted yet. And do we know if the other Jason Baldwin was ever questioned at all? He was. I believe he was, yeah. And I think, I think there was even, I think he may have been one of the people that polygraphed. Okay. Or Robert Birch was. I'm not, somewhere in there. But yeah, he was, he was questioned. As a matter of fact, I think it was Jason Baldwin's dad was one of the initial suspects because he is a registered sex offender okay. in the area. Um, so, the, so yeah, he was connected to, to the case. And that's why it got confusing because there were two Jason Baldwins throughout the case that that were being questioned or being talked about by police. But, and again, with most people in their interviews, if you read it, if they mention Jason Baldwin, whoever is doing the interview is trying to make clear, wait, which Jason Baldwin are you talking about? But that wasn't the case with Jesse. So we just assume he was talking about Jesse, the, the Jason Baldwin that we're familiar with. All right, let's get into these questions. Matt says, I have always wondered where the information about the lake knife came from in the first place. I know Jason wanted to take the stand, but was advised not to by Paul Ford. Do you think this would have helped the trial if he had, and also cleared up the lake knife issue? I don't think it would have made much of a difference um, if he testified. We saw that Damien testified. That didn't go well. Defense attorneys generally don't put their defendants on the stand because it it, it subjects them to cross-examination, and lawyers are very good at spinning things. And being on the stand is tough. I've done it a lot of times as an expert witness. 
I, I've, I've testified probably a total of, I don't know, probably a dozen times in my life for different things. And it's hard because you can only answer the questions they're asking you. So it, it's easy for a prosecutor to only ask the questions that, number one, they know the answers to, and two, that are going to make you look bad. You know, so it, it probably wouldn't have gone well for Jason. And it, it really, it, it didn't really matter what they were saying. I believe they were convicted, uh, Jason and Je- uh, Jason and Damien, who were tried together. I believe that they were convicted basically because of the Jesse Miss Kelly confession, which is super interesting because it wasn't allowed in at the trial. But we later found in the juror notes that they were talking about the confession while they were deliberating. So they, they knew about it, even though they weren't supposed to know about, to know about it. Yeah, I think they lost their innocence till proven guilty. Before that case had even started. For sure. As soon as, as soon as they walked in those doors, they were guilty. Yeah. As soon as Gary Gitchell said, told the press that, you know, they're on a case of scale of 1 to 10, his case was an 11. Mm-hmm. It was over for those boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as the late night knife goes, at trial, a lot of the stuff was discovered after trial. But at trial, first of all, let me clear up. The late knife is the stupidest part of this entire case. All, before we even get into the question of who it belonged to and where it came from, the boys, that knife was not used on the boys. There were no injuries on them that match up to that knife. In my opinion, in the opinion of literally every expert that's looked at the case after the conviction, 90% of the injuries are more. Every, basically, everything on the external that could have been attributed to a knife was from post-mortem animal activity. So it doesn't, the knife doesn't matter anyway. It's completely moot. But besides that, what they did at trial, you know, basically, they said this was found behind Jason's trailer, which it was in the lake. And then they tried to, they used a little grapefruit and took that knife and, and Fogelman scratched the back of the grapefruit with the serrated side of it. And it's like, look, see how those look like some of the injuries? It's the most ridiculous, blasphemous thing I've seen at a trial in a long time. Because you know, they had a medical examiner on the stand who wouldn't say that knife caused those injuries. So the prosecutor himself holds up a grapefruit, scratches the back of it and says, now you're telling me that this doesn't look like those injuries on Chris Byer's shoulder? With no expert saying that that is actually what it is, and it's pretty easy to measure and find out for certain if those injuries came from that knife. Uh, but but yeah, I think it was a it was a devastating blow to Baldwin. I don't think him getting on the stand saying, "Yeah, I threw that in the in the in the water a year before" would have helped him. It would have got spun around on him. But what we found out after the trial was one of the divers, the diver that found the knife, that so Gary Gitchell had told police or told the newspaper that he was told by the prosecutor, Fogelman, to send divers into the lake to look for a knife. They claimed they just happened to find this knife behind Baldwin's house. The diver was only in the water for, I've heard 30 minutes, but as a, as a rescue diver myself, that's bullshit. You can't be underwater for that long, usually 20 minutes maximum. So probably in, in, just in a matter of minutes, the, the diver comes up with this knife. Later. After the trial, uh, he admits that he was literally told ex- that there was this survival knife in the water and exactly where it would be. And he went, that's why he found it so fast. They, they went off of a neighbor's dock. They got permission to dive in the lake off their dock and then swam right over behind the Baldwin's dock and found the knife. And he said that he was told it would be there and, and where to find it. And then later we find out from Dominique Tier and Gosh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Uh, but basically, in interviews, they had told, they are the ones that had told police or Fogelman 
about the knife. And they had told Fogelman that the knife had been thrown in the lake behind Jason's trailer a year before the murders. So you so when we're talking about some serious prosecutorial misconduct here, the prosecutor knew there was a knife in the lake and he knew how it got to the lake and he knew when it got into the lake, sends divers in to retrieve it, pretends that they just stumbled across it, that it was a great guess, and then presented that knife at trial as evidence of something that Jason had thrown the knife that he used to murder these boys into the lake in order to hide the evidence when he knew damn well that knife had been in that lake for a year before that. And I believe the way it had come out is they were asking everyone about knives because the police just didn't understand the injuries they were seeing. And, you know, so there was a lot of questions about, did Damien have a knife? Did they have knives like this? Blah, blah, blah. And so it came out that, yeah, Jason had like a survival knife, but it had been thrown in the lake a year before. Yeah, I, I was curious about that. And And as you say that, did they say that there was a survival knife? I know that's what they found, but did they say that that's what was thrown in? Because as the story evolved, you know, he talks about his mother throwing this pocket knife in. And then he accidentally threw the, you know, he was kind of throwing a temper tantrum, as said, and threw it in. But I w- almost wonder if the divers were looking for the pocket knife and actually got a happy accident and found this bigger knife. Yeah, I don't know. But they'd have been better off with the pocket knife. Mm-hmm. Because another stupidity with this knife when it comes to the trial is the fact that Jesse Miss Kelly, once he said they used a knife, after the police coax him into saying that, he says that it's a small, foldable pocket knife. Mm -hmm. So then they find this giant nine-inch blade survival knife, this Rambo knife, and try to spin that. Like the this case is, it's 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 amazing to me that there is as much controversy as there is over this case because it is, and there'll be a lot of people pissed off. Not a lot of people. All six of you that are still listening that think that they're guilty and don't like what I'm doing, but those people will be mad. But this case is stupid. I mean, it is the stupidest, most obvious wrongful conviction case that I've ever seen. I mean, you just look at how hard the police had to work in order to build a case. And this knife is a perfect example. They have to lead Jesse Miss Kelly into saying there is a knife. He finally says it's a little foldable knife, and then they're told that Jason Baldwin threw a knife into the lake behind his house a year before. They go in there and get it, pretend they just happened to find it, and then present a nine-inch Rambo survival knife as the murder weapon, which is in complete contrast to what Jesse Miss Kelly said, if they believe Jesse Miss Kelly, was what was actually used. I mean, it's ridiculous. The case, This case is, is It blows me away there is so much controversy behind it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Chanel says when Jason and Jesse were housed in prison together, did Jesse ever elaborate on how Jason's name ever came up into the equation during his interrogation when he was asked mainly about Damien? No, I, honestly, really, from, from what I've understood from Jason talking about his relationship with Jesse is that Jesse didn't really even have the capacity to have that conversation. I don't mean that he couldn't speak, but 
I don't think that Jesse really ever understood completely how much what he did and said caused this to happen, if that makes sense. I don't think he necessarily even remembers exactly what he said. He knows that he was scared and that he was manipulated and he gave statements. I don't think you can get that necessarily out of Jason. I mean, or Jesse. I mean, he's he has talked about later after his conviction about how they pushed him and threatened him and told him what to say, but you know, I don't I don't think you're going to get those kind of details out of him. All right, Nicole says, "Will you be speaking to the families of the victims again?" Um, yeah. I have, and I do regularly, actually, some of the, the families of the victims. And uh, you're going to hear from some of them in the, in the series that's going to drop in eight days. Lynn says, since Jason was found guilty by association in a sense, did he ever find himself blaming Damien for what happened? No. I mean, maybe internally at some point. I'm sure you have to think that you know, this wouldn't be happening to me if it weren't for Damien. You know, if anybody, I think he would blame Jesse. We actually saw some of it in the documentaries. I think it was a Paradise Lost where they were basically offering him a deal to testify against Damien. And he's like, this is ridiculous. Damien didn't do it and neither did I. Like, I just don't think. And one of the, one of the best things for people to believe that, that they're guilty. I, I love that scene in Paradise Lost when they're asking him if he thinks Damien did it. And you can see genuinely him thinking about like, oh, I just, I just don't think that he could do it. And, and some people on the other side will use that to say, oh, he's not sure. Yeah, he knows he's guilty too. But what I see is someone, first of all, that genuinely doesn't know who killed those boys. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a clue. So much so that he's considering the fact that did Damien maybe do it? Yeah, that he's really trying to think about it. Yeah, because you know, I, I, think he, I, think his, I haven't watched those documentaries in years, but I think he says something to the extent of, of well, they, you know, do they think he's guilty? And he says, well, they sure made him look guilty they sure made him look like he did it you know when he was on the stand mm-hmm. and, he, and he's genuinely wondering if maybe Damien did it or didn't uh, but no I don't think he's ever blamed Damien and certainly not now as as you know he's grown up into an adult and understands things you know he he, he knows who's to blame he knows that it's the West Memphis Police Department and the Crittenden County DA's office namely John Fogelman or, or who's to blame for stealing his life away Kirsty says. How come Jason and Jesse ended up in the same prison, but Damien wasn't? And why did he end up mainly in solitary confinement compared to the other two? Now, maybe I'm jumping ahead and assuming too much, but I would assume that it's because Damien's on death row. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why they weren't in the same unit. The death row was a completely different unit than, than the, the, the regular Gen Pop or whatever it is where uh, Jason and Jesse were. So they were never going to be. I, I think they were actually at one point. In this, because I remember Jason telling me a story about how he was working in the law library or wherever he was, and he saw Damien walk by and wait. I think he might have been like coming in for for a court hearing or something, but somehow they they saw each other once or twice during the eighteen years they were locked up. But as far as Jason and Jesse, they were you know it was a crapshoot which unit they get put in, and so they spent quite a bit of time in the same unit. Uh, but Damien was in solitary mostly because I mean he was treated horribly he was on death row he was getting he was taking beatings from other inmates from the guards i mean he's he wrote a lot about it in one of his books about everything that was that was happening to him he ended up suing the prison i think for the conditions he was in and that certainly didn't make things any better and the result was fine we'll make you safe and they'll stick you in solitary confinement that so you know it was 8 years into his sentence he got stuck in solitary to keep him safe 
And there he sat for the next 10 years. Ross says how much of the evidence presented against Jason Baldwin at his trial was obtained prior to his arrest? I don't think any of it, you know, other than than Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. Jason wasn't a prime suspect until the confession. Right. So so Damien was their focus. It was the, the police were looking for Damien. They were trying to get evidence on Damien when they finally got Miss Kelly to give his confession. And he said it was it was Damien and Jason. They went right out and arrested Damien and Jason and then started building a case. Well, there really wasn't a lot of evidence against Jason. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the Miss Kelly confession. Right. The lake knife. Right. And then his association with Damon. And that's basically well, it, there, isn't there? There was another jailhouse snitch that Michael Carson. Oh, I do remember him. Yep. Yep. That said that, you know, Jamie or that Jason was telling him all these stories in prison. But that was another great example of severe prosecutorial misconduct. The counselor, I think we talked about it in the interview. Um, so I don't go too far into it. But the counselor that worked with this kid not only told uh, Jason after the fact and Jason's attorney after the fact, but wrote to Fogelman, wrote to the prosecutor and told him, this kid is lying. Mm -hmm. Do not put this kid on the stand. He's lying. He lies about everything. He's trying to get a deal. And I gave him the details of this crime. And Fogelman still put him on the stand and pretended like none of that ever happened. But then the other thing, they had some bullshit um, like fiber evidence that was later proven to be, I mean, they were just stretching. Well, they had a, a red fiber that they said could have been from... A towel in Jason's house. Jason's or mother's robe. That's right. Jason's so, mother's robe. So that's how far they're going, trying to link these two to the crime. Is they find a red fiber on the crime scene, and they take it and they go through every single thing in their house to find something that's similar. And what they find is a red robe of Jason's mother's, like a bathrobe. And so they say, "Oh, this came from Jason's house." With no, and, and so here's a little contrast for you. With that. They're 100 percent. That's and there's still people that claim that they're guilty to this day that will still cite that fiber, even though later testing proved that it actually wasn't even a match to the robe. It was basically it was the same color and a similar material. Yeah, uh, it wasn't even matched to the robe. But they'll still claim that that fiber is a significant piece of evidence. But those same people will take a hair that was pulled out of the knot of one of the boy's bindings that is is it's not a a, a match. But one of the boys' stepfathers can't be excluded. All of the convicted can be, and, there's, and they're saying that it could be this guy's hair. And they look at that and say, it's irrelevant. It could be transfer. It could be whatever because yeah. they were in the house. It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't say that this is important and that's not. When, when one is clearly far more significant than the other. Not saying that it's proof that someone did something, you know, that hair. But it's certainly more of a significant piece of evidence than a red fiber. You really can't pick and choose what you look at. Right, exactly. But anyways, as far as the question goes, what was nothing before trial? Jason Baldwin, I don't believe, was really even a suspect prior to his arrest. And it was after his arrest when they tried building the case against him. All right, last questions from Brittany. Regarding the shoe print and handprint found at the scene that excluded Jason, Jesse, and Damien, is it still available for testing, or are we going to have to wait and see during the oxygen show? She also says, speaking of the oxygen show, since we have an air date that's next weekend, will we go back to season five before season eight starts? Very good questions. I'm so excited. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that, yes, we have an air date, 
So this is what's going to happen to give you guys a heads up. So the series, we did a four-part docuseries. So it's four one-hour episodes. What Oxygen has chosen to do with it is to create a weekend event. So what was originally going to be, you know, one hour a week for four weeks, you're going to get the entire series next weekend. So they're going to air parts one and two on Saturday the 28th, then parts three and four on Sunday the 29th. The whole thing. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. I assume it'll be 8 p.m. on Sunday as well. Uh, Some of the trailers are just now starting to get out there for it. So check those out on Oxygen's website, on our social media. So because of that, as I mentioned, this was not our plan. But as promised, we said once this show airs, we're going to circle back to the West Memphis 3 case. So this is perfect timing for us to, to make that shift. So we have one more episode that's going to drop before the Oxygen series drops, and that's here in, in, in two days on Sunday. That episode is going to be kind of a refresher recap of Season 5 uh, from, from our Season 5. So we're going to go through, we're going to play some highlights from Season 5. We're going to talk about basically what we discovered during that season. Our hope is that for all of you that listen to Season 5, it'll be a great refresher. And we're, of course, expecting a lot of new listeners to come aboard with the Auction TV series. So it'll be kind of a recap for them so they know what we had already covered. And then from that point forward, we're going to have four episodes for each hour, for each part of the series. We're going to do an episode recapping it. I'll be joined, hopefully, by some guests that were a part of those series. We're going to talk about what went into making them. And the big thing is what we discovered and what we did that you didn't get to see. Because, of course, you know we, rec- we filmed for three months. We had thousands of hours of recording, and it's all cut down into four one-hour segments. So there's a lot there that you're not getting to see. So we're going we're gonna to go through that. We're going to walk through that for four weeks and then continue into our investigation into the West Memphis 3 case. And I believe that we, with all of us together, with the airing of the TV show, the new public attention on this, I believe that we have a legitimate chance of solving the case of the forgotten West Memphis 3. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. 
Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Uh, hope all of you are doing well during this COVID-19 coronavirus. Uh, I don't want to call it apocalypse, but uh, until we are on day five. We uh, just said we weren't going to talk about this, man. No, I just <laughs> you ruined my intro and now. You did, and, you, and, and what's really funny is within seven or so seconds, you said the word apocalypse. Like you took it, you took it, you took it, you hit the gas, didn't he? Yeah. Hit the gas. I'm going to reset, but you need to know that when you came at me, <laughs> when you came at me with four questions, I'm like, we need to add some content here. We need to add some content. I don't know how you feel about the word apocalypse. <laughs> that was a poor choice. That was a poor choice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.